Well, welcome. My name's Alistair. I am the lead pastor of St. Peter's Fireside. Wherever you are today, I'm really glad you're joining us. Before we get into God's word, let's pray. Father, as we open your word, we ask that you'd apply it to our minds, that we not grow shallow, that you'd apply it to our hearts, that we not grow cold, and that you'd apply it to our feet, that we not just be hearers of your word, but doers also. We pray all of these things in the powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Once upon a time, back when we used to be able to fly with ease, I found myself stranded in Boise, Idaho, because my connecting flight was canceled. And so I was killing time, and for the first time ever, I paid close attention to the coat of arms on my Canadian passport. And I thought my eyes were playing tricks on me because I was convinced one of the horses was not a horse, but a unicorn. And I thought, this can't be right. So I looked it up on Google and I did a little image search of the Canadian passport and zoomed in very closely. And in fact, there is a unicorn on the Canadian passport. And my whole world just blew up. I thought, what kind of mythical land have I been growing up in my whole life and I've just been completely unaware? So I did a, big, a bit of digging because I wanted to know what this meant. And it actually symbolizes the support of Scotland and believe it or not, in the Scottish coat of arms, they too have a unicorn. Now, there's obviously a lot of other elements and symbols in uh, the official coat of arms of Canada. And each of them says something about the history and purpose and goals of our country. Today, in the church calendar, is Christ the King. It's a day in which we celebrate Jesus as the King above every king, in fact, the king of all creation, to whom one day every knee will bow and profess that he is Lord. If Jesus were to have a coat of arms, a quick survey throughout church history, looking at the art that's been used to depict Jesus, uh, would suggest an animal, not a unicorn, but a lamb. Jesus is the Lamb of God, the Agnus Dei, the Pascal Lamb. He's often depicted as a lamb holding a banner with a cross. And this is to represent how Jesus, our King, overcame suffering and evil and, and sin and death through his sacrifice on the cross. The Pascal Lamb, this is how our King reigns. And so if Jesus were going to have a coat of arms, it would be the Pascal Lamb. It tells us something about his history and about what he's doing in the world still. Although the Gospels are full of symbolism and metaphor to help us get a sense of who Jesus is, as Luke writes, he takes careful uh, attention and effort to point out that this is all occurring within history. And so throughout his gospel, he gives us these little history markers just to remind us that, hey, these aren't just big ideas. This is something that took place within time and space. So we might read something like, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, or in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus, and in the 15th year in the reign of Tiberius Caesar. And when you're reading the gospel of Luke, it's easy to breeze past these kind of details, isn't it? But we shouldn't, 
They're important. They're there for a reason. They actually are there to help us understand something significant about who Jesus is. So today, I want to look at some of these governors and emperors and rulers that occupied the stage of history when Jesus came to earth. Because their presence in the gospel teaches us something about Christ the King. So first, I want to take us on a short tour of some of these, these rulers. And then I want to look at what they teach us about Christ the King. So first, let's take our short tour of these rulers in the first three chapters of Luke. There's several people mentioned. We get Herod the Great, Herod Antipas, uh, Caesar Augustus, and uh, Caesar Tiberius, and also Pontius Pilate. So two Herods, two Caesars, and the well-known Pontius Pilate. These are the, the players on the stage that Luke draws attention to in the first three chapters of his gospel. So first, let's look at Herod the Great, also known as King Herod. So he lived around 70 BC until 4 AD, and Luke sets the stage of history in his gospel right after his introduction. In chapter 1, verse 5, here's what Luke writes, in the days of Herod, king of Judea. So this was who uh, was reigning during the time of Elizabeth and Zechariah. This was their king. And Herod, uh, he was a Jewish king, but he was ultimately loyal to the powers of Rome. And he was a shrewd politician. In fact, he is credited for a restoration project of the Jewish temple, and he, he had a lot of acclaim for that. He also built remarkable cities and building projects. But in order to do so, he often exhorted or exacted finances out of his Jewish subjects. And so he was despised in most Jewish quarters, especially because he was often propagating Roman culture upon them. Herod was also ruthless. Caesar Augustus once said, I would rather be Herod's pig than Herod's son. I'd rather be Herod's pig than Herod's son. And this is because Herod's family dynamic put Mexican soap operas to shame. He had children murdered. He had relatives poisoned. He even murdered one of his 10 wives. He was a ruthless individual. And when he died, the historian Josephus records that he had called his sister in and asked her to round up all the Jewish leaders into a single location and to have them murdered because he didn't want them to rejoice at the hour of his death. Rather, he wanted there to be weeping at the hour of his death. It's of little surprise that the Gospel of Matthew says that this Herod is the one who attempted to have all the, the male uh, newborns under the age of two killed throughout the region of Bethlehem in order to try to stop the Messiah from taking his throne. This is Herod the Great. Now, when he died, his region of control was divided up to three of his sons. And Luke mentions this in the third chapter of his gospel. And one of the sons that took over some of his region was Herod Antipas, also known as Herod, King Herod. And so he is the the main Herod throughout the Gospels, the one that Jesus will interact with and John will even interact with. And unlike his father, he was actually much more accommodating to Jewish culture. 
Now, in part, it was because uh, his Roman authorities were putting a lot of pressure on him to keep the peace, to make sure there weren't riots. But unlike his father, he wasn't quite as successful politically. He didn't build any grand cities or buildings, and he wasn't quite as shrewd or as ruthless, but he wasn't much better either. He's perhaps best well known for having John the Baptist, the son of Zechariah, beheaded. And maybe even better known for his role in the trial of Jesus. But it's important for us to see that the Herodian dynasty, these kings, they were just pawns of the Roman Empire. If we look at the second chapter of Luke, it begins this way. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And so Caesar Augustus, he... He ruled over the known world when John the Baptist was born and when Jesus was born. And in this passage, Luke mentions that once again, Augustus is trying to number and measure the extent of his empire. Uh, He was an adopted son of Julius Caesar, which is pretty interesting. And he was recognized as the sole leader of the Roman world in 27 B.C. And many people paid tribute to him as if he was a god. In fact, we found inscriptions that read, Divine Augustus, Caesar, son of God, benefactor and savior of the whole world. Now, he was succeeded by Tiberius Caesar in 14 AD, mentioned in Luke 3, uh, when Luke writes in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. And so this was the Caesar through the adulthood of John and Jesus. And his reign is is marked by numerous trials for treason and sedition and his attempt to deport all of the Jews out of Rome. And in his last years of being an emperor, his mental health declined so terribly that his final years are characterized as a period of pure terror. Pure terror. Lastly, there's Pontius Pilate, who's also mentioned in Luke 3.1. And Pilate was the governor of the Roman province of Judea from 26 to 36 BC. And he's described in ancient Jewish histories as being inflexible with this bend of self-will and a relentlessness. And his administration was marked by briberies and insults and robberies and outrages and injuring people and executions without trial. And he was savagely fierce, according to historians. And like his political counterparts, he was not very kind to his Jewish subjects. So King Herod, Herod Antipas, Caesar Augustus, Tiberius Caesar and Pilate, these are some of the renowned leaders on the stage of the world that Luke is capturing for us. And the little picture that I've painted for us shows That they were the ones civilizing the world, building cities, constructing empires, establishing cultures, some even declaring themselves gods worthy of worship. And it was messy and oppressive and brutal and murderous in times, but that was just part and parcel of what it meant to wield political power. And if we look throughout the world today, not much has changed. Now, I want to consider why these rulers are mentioned in Luke's gospel and what they tell us about Christ the King. Where is 
the movement of God in all of this? What is God up to in the world at this time? Luke writes in chapter 1, verse 5, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah, and he had a wife, and her name was Elizabeth. So yes, Herod the Great is, is making his mark in history. He's, he's building remarkable things. But the movement of God is at work in two unremarkable and significant, humble, everyday people, Zechariah and Elizabeth. We read in chapter 2, uh, beginning in verse 1, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, and he also went with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. So yes, Caesar Augustus has built and established the Roman Empire. He's measuring the extent of his empire, but the kingdom of God is not being established through Caesar Augustus. Rather, it is being established through Joseph and Mary, two young, ordinary people on their way to Bethlehem. Luke writes in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being uh, tetrarch of Galilee, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. So yes, Tiberius Caesar and Pontius Pilate and Herod Antipas are establishing their political careers, but the word of God came to John, not in the center of power, not in some temple, not in some political castle, but out in the wilderness. Luke lists all these powerful politicians. He even lists elsewhere um, some powerful religious leaders. And then he notes that the word of God bypasses them all, that the movement of God is caught up in common ordinary people like Zechariah and Elizabeth, Joseph and Mary, and a prophet out in the wilderness, John, the son of Zechariah, John the Baptist. What we need to see from this is that the center of God's presence and activity is not found in the corridors of political power. It's not even found in the corridors of religious power. And here's how ancient readers of Luke's gospel may have heard this. Yes, there's Prime Minister Trudeau in Canada and President-elect Biden in America. Yes, there's Premier Horgan in British Columbia and Mayor Stewart in Vancouver. But the key players in the movement of God are Doug and Melissa from Chetwin, B.C. and Mike and Karen from Surrey. And the word of God came to Steve in a Soyuz because that's our desert. The ancient reader in Luke's gospel would be thinking, is this really where God is establishing his kingdom? Now, some would maybe expect to find God at work in his temple. Some were ardently expecting for God to restore Israel as a political power, to bring Israel back up into prestige on the world stage. That's how they were expecting God to move. 
Others reading this perhaps maybe even believe that Caesar might be divine. Perhaps he was a god. Maybe he, the Roman Empire truly is an empire of peace that will unite the whole world. But in Luke's gospel, God is found among his people. God becomes one of his people. And change will not come from temples or political agendas, but from a different power altogether. As Jesus steps onto the stage of human history, he steps into insignificance, into a common, ordinary, everyday life. He's not about to inherit political clout from Joseph or Mary. He's not immediately on his way to some kingship in Israel. He doesn't have any connections to political powers in Rome. He has no strings to pull, and this was by design. When Jesus came into the world, he committed his entire life and ministry to proclaiming the kingdom of God and demonstrating to us what the kingdom of God looked like. He preached God's kingdom and he practiced God's kingdom for us. The New Testament scholar Richard Bauckham helps paint a vivid picture of what this actually looked like. Here's what he says. Jesus, Jesus shows us that the kingdom of God in relation to demonic oppression, conquest. In relation to misrepresentation of God's rule, sharp rebuke. In relation to self-complacency, warning. In relation to sin and failure, forgiveness and assurance of love. In relation to sickness, healing. In relation to material need, provision of daily bread. In relation to exclusion, welcoming inclusion. In relation to desire for power and an example of humble and loving service. In relation to death, life. In relation to false peace, painful division. In relation to enmity, reconciliation. And the kingdom of God also has something to say to earthly powers as well. Jesus had something to say to each of the rulers that Luke highlights in his gospel. First, Jesus had something to say to Herod. In Luke 13, verse 32, Jesus is told that Herod wants to kill him. And here's what Jesus says. Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. That fox. In the ancient world, to call someone a fox was an insult. It was to call them destructive and worthless. Jesus names Herod for what he is. At this point in the gospel, John has been beheaded. Jesus says, you're a fox. You're opposed to God's ways. You're murdering his prophets. The kingdom of God in relation to political oppression, sharp rebuke. Jesus has something to say to Caesar. When asked whether or not people should pay tribute or taxes to Caesar, Jesus says in Luke 20 verse 25, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and unto God the things that are God's. In a really clever way, Jesus separates Caesar from God. 
whenever possible, so long as it does not require disobedience to God, honor the political system at hand. Pay your taxes, pay your tribute. But your ultimate allegiance must be to God and his kingdom. And in saying this, Jesus dethrones Caesar's idolatrous claim to be divine. The kingdom in relation to political systems and idolatry, clever faithfulness. Finally, Jesus has something to say to Pilate. When Jesus was arrested by the religious elites who opposed him and handed over to Pilate to be tried for crucifixion, we read in Luke 23, verse 3, Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. The kingdom in relation to political injustice, proclamation. Jesus had something to say to the political powers of his day. Herod, go ahead and kill me, but it'll only achieve God's plan. Caesar, collect your coins and taxes, but your empire is not the kingdom of God. Pilate, carry out the execution. Enforce your rule with violence as you're accustomed to doing, but it will not dethrone me. Instead, you will actually enthrone me as king. Unsurprisingly, it's Herod, Caesar, and Pilate who all play a role in orchestrating the death of Christ. A mob of enraged religious leaders hand Jesus over to Pilate and Herod and Pilate enact the violence uh, empowered to them through Caesar's government. If a coat of arms was designed to represent uh, Roman power, if a coat of arms was actually designed to represent Roman oppressive rule, the emblem would be a cross. The emblem would be a cross. In the ancient world, crucifixion was shameful defeat. Now, this was a demonstration of political power. This was how the empire subjugated uh, rebels and revolutionaries and how they punished criminals. So the cross represented the triumph of the empire over everyone who refused to bow a knee. And according to Luke in all of scripture, this is where God reigns. This is the movement of God. This is where you find God on earth crucified on two crooked beams. Once again, the ancient reader of Luke's gospel would think, is this really where you find God establishing his kingdom? Not in the corridors of political power or religious power or restoring Israel's national influence, but a cross. God reigns through suffering on a cross. But this is the triumph of God. Through his nonviolent love, this is how Jesus overcomes all these powers, all these influences, sin, suffering, evil, death, oppression all defeated through a cross. This is the way of King Jesus, Christ our King. Now, in our political context that's increasingly divided and antagonistic and and polarized, I want to ask you, where is your allegiance? 
in your heart of hearts, where is your deepest trust? Where's your hope for the world? Is it in your political opinions? Is it attached to a specific political system, political party, platform, agenda, ruler? Or is your allegiance to Christ the King? Does your knee bow to him as the true God of the world, the true hope of the world, the only one who can establish an everlasting kingdom of peace? If we declare that Jesus Christ is King, if we bow our knee to him, there's going to be implications for how we live in the world. If we were handed a passport to mark us as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, if there was going to be a coat of arms on this passport, if there was an emblem, it is going to be the Pascal lamb. It's going to be our king holding a banner with the cross. It's going to be an ongoing reminder that this is how God is reconciling and restoring all things to himself. And it, Jesus says then, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. If we're going to bow our knee to Jesus, it means we walk the way of the cross. We take on a cruciform shape life, a cruciform ethic, a, cru a cruciform politic. If we bow our knee to Jesus, here's something it means for us. We should never feel entirely home here and we should never feel entirely comfortable in any political system or with any political party, no matter how noble or committed to the common good they may be. Whether you lean left or right or more center, it should never fit quite right if your knee is bowed to Jesus. And the Gospel of Luke makes this abundantly clear. When it comes to the kingdom and earthly politics, Jesus models a, pa a pattern of sharp rebuke, clever faithfulness, and proclamation. There's going to be times where it is appropriate to powerfully critique things going on in politics that run contrary to the ways of God. Jesus does this. There's going to be times where we need to be clever and faithful within the system, honoring it where we can. And there's going to be times where the system turns against people and oppresses them. And in those moments, that's when we join Christ in proclamation, in proclaiming that this is not the way of the kingdom of God and it cannot defeat the kingdom of God. But if we're going to bow our knee to King Jesus... We must acknowledge that no political party, no political agenda, no political system is fully aligned with the kingdom of God. And if, if your political persuasion causes you to diminish others or look down or even condemn a sister or brother in Christ, watch out. Be careful. We must be exceedingly gracious to our brothers and sisters, especially when we disagree. You know, throughout my history of being a pastor, on more than one occasion, I've had an individual come to me, different individuals, 
and tell me that they're concerned about someone else in our community and in fact think I should have them removed from our community because of political convictions they've expressed. Essentially, they're saying to me, if you understood who this person is and how out of step their views in politics are with the kingdom of God, they should have no place in our community. This has happened on more than one occasion. But the truth is we will fundamentally disagree about how the kingdom relates to the specific issues of our time. This is inevitable and it's, it's inescapable. Sometimes two people who disagree, they're both wrong. Sometimes one person might be more wrong than the other. And sometimes one person might even be entirely wrong. It can and it will be messy. But when you're right, or when you think you're right, and when someone else is wrong or when you think they're wrong, how you go about being right is just as important. Because you can be right but in all the wrong ways. If your conviction about any given issue results in unnecessary division, if it results in strife, if it results in diminishing someone else or slandering them, if it results in anger or hatred or malice or gossip, it shows that you've ceased to bow your knee to Christ as King. In fact, you've stood up and you've realigned yourself with the way of the political system of the world. You're just following the influence of culture and the way things are done around here. But it is not the way of Jesus. And so if you struggle in this area, if you find it really hard to extend grace to someone who shares your faith but also expresses a political perspective that you think is outright wrong, I invite you to focus on your own sinfulness and the other person's belovedness, especially when you disagree with them. Because this is what it means for us to declare that Christ is king. Just think about the people Jesus invited to follow him. Now, the culture of ancient Judaism was as politically charged as our own. And the spectrum of political parties was wide and multifaceted and What's interesting is when Jesus called 12 people to follow him, he chose two people specifically on the opposite ends of the political spectrum. Simon was a zealot. The zealots were a political power, a party that worked to incite violence and rebellion against the Roman Empire. They dreamed of expelling Rome from uh, the Holy Land by military might and force. And they believed that anyone who sided with the Roman Empire were therefore enemies and worthy of violent attacks. Some scholars suggest that they may have been the first organized terrorist group. Simon the Zealot, a disciple of Jesus. And Matthew the tax collector. As a profession, a tax collector was perhaps the most despised and hated person of their day. Because in the Jewish context, they exact taxes from their own people to pay the Roman government, their oppressors. And it was widely held that tax collectors actually abused the system and they demanded more money than necessary and made great profit. And so not only would someone like Matthew be an unethical cheater, but he was a traitor to his homeland and his own people. Now imagine, 
what it must have been like for Simon the Zealot, a person who violently opposes the system of Rome, and Matthew the tax collector, someone who unjustly benefits from the system of Rome, to be called together to follow Jesus, to spend and share life together day after day, to go through the day sharing meals and having conversations. Now, of course, we don't have any of these recorded conversations between Simon and Matthew, but I'm sure at the beginning, each had their convictions about how Jesus would more likely affirm their perspective than the other person's perspective. But here's something I think we can assume, that as time went on, someone like Simon would have to have learned how to bow his knee to Jesus. He would have had to reevaluate how he approaches politics, how he approaches violence to achieve ends. And he would have had to grapple with how God restores the world through a non-violent sacrifice on the cross as an expression of divine love for the world. He would have had to reevaluate how transformation comes into this world. Simon the Zealot would have to change over time, and it took time. Matthew the tax collector... He would have had to first reevaluate his underhanded ways and his profession. But he may have even had to reevaluate his, his whole job altogether. He would have had to question whether he was being unfaithful to God in his service to Rome. He would have had to reevaluate all of these things and especially repent of the ways in which he oppressed others to his own benefit. Both Simon and Matthew in different ways, would have to learn how to exist with one another as they both learn what it means to bend their knee to Christ the King. And the only reason it can work is because they bend their knee to Christ the King. You see, the way of Jesus is significantly better than what we can muster up at best at times, which is, let's just agree to disagree. Instead, the way of Jesus, when we bend our knee to him, when we really pledge our allegiance to him, when we trust him, when we say, your ways, Jesus, not my own. Mutual submission to Christ does not immediately resolve our disagreements or our different perspectives. But it is a posture that humbles us that puts us in a place of true repentance, which is not just feeling bad about the things we did, but realigning our minds and our imaginations and our hearts with the ways of the kingdom. And as we see who Jesus is, as we see what his kingdom is like, when we mutually submit to him and his lordship, we then reevaluate how we live. We then reevaluate how we relate to politics and we prioritize humans over their opinions Every single time. It is not the way of the world, but it is the way of our king. Political powers can't achieve this. History has shown us time and time again what political powers are capable of. And we've also seen throughout history just how damaging it is when the church gets seduced by using political powers to her advantage. Do not waste your hope in political powers. 
I am not saying that we shouldn't be engaged politically. It is an important part of what it means to be alive and to be faithfully following Jesus. But do not put your hope in a political system or party or leader. The vision of the kingdom of God is only possible when above all else, our allegiance is to Jesus and his ways. So again and again, Luke shows us that the center of God's activity and power is not in political corridors. It's not even in religious power. It's found in the crucifixion of our king. It's found among his people. This is the profound and confusing reality of how God works in the world. He bypasses all of these great and grand and seemingly powerful things and he works through a humble and insignificant people. Your life in the midst of this community, empowered by the Spirit, bending our knees toward Jesus. This is how God can bring change into our world. And it might start small. It might look foolish. It might even seem insignificant, but it's not. This is what the Apostle Paul has to say in 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Christ our King crucified. Christ our King crucified. That is what we celebrate today. That is the hope of the world. So I want to ask you, are you bending your knee to him or do you need to bend it again?